A quick announcement before today's episode, I have a new show coming out called The One Minute Preceptor. It's based on the One Minute Preceptor model for clinical education. And in this, we're going to interview a lot of physicians and those in clinical education. So please check out The One Minute Preceptor now. Go subscribe to the trailer episode so you don't miss any of the new episodes. Next week, we should be releasing more information on our book coming out called Read This Before Medical School. More on that next episode. Welcome to the Medical Menemist Podcast, your source for memory techniques and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. On this episode, we have mental athlete Daniel Kilov joining us. He's been featured on TEDx, written for the Mensa Journal, Table Oz, and has performed in several Australian memory championships. He's also a national record holder for memory in abstract images and is a PhD candidate at Australian National University. Daniel, how are you doing today? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you. It's good to be here. Perfect. So what got you into memory techniques and the memory championship? Just a quick summation for people that might not know your backstory. I think like many memory athletes, one of the reasons I became interested in the sport was precisely because growing up, memory had been a weakness of mine. I think that you know, people with memory problems, people with various learning disabilities are disproportionately overrepresented among memory athletes. So memory was a weakness of mine when I was at school, but at the time I didn't really care too much in the sense that I wasn't terribly interested in my studies as a school kid. But when I got to university, I started to really enjoy the things that I was studying. And then all of a sudden became something of an obstacle in my poor memory. And so I sought out ways to improve it. You know, it was kind of by chance that I discovered memory techniques in the sense that I kind of wanted to improve my memory. I had this problem, but no solution. While I was doing some casual work in a library where I was basically putting these RFID stickers in all of their books, I stumbled across a book on memory and memory techniques. Now, ironically, I can't remember the title of the book or who it was by, but I tried one of the exercises and and with no kind of previous experience, I was suddenly able to memorize this list of like 20 words after a single sighting. It was just like magic. So after that, I tracked down the Australian memory champion at the time, a guy named Tansel Ali. He was famous not just for his achievements at the Australian memory championships, but also because he memorized the entire Sydney Yellow Pages, two volumes. That's our the phone book. And he did it in something like 14 days. I asked him two questions. The first was, is it true that anyone can learn to do this? And the second was, if it is, can you teach me? He answered in the affirmative to both of those questions. And so for the next sort of several months, I would trek across Melbourne, where I was living at the time, to basically study memory techniques under him. After that, I competed in my first Australian memory championships, and I came second after Tansel, after my coach, or set the national record for abstracting just for the first time. And the rest is history, I guess. Awesome. I guess I could have probably pictured that, but I've never heard it actually stated that there is a disproportionate representation of those with memory and learning disabilities in memory championships. I seem to hear a lot of the same story. Everyone had a bad memory and really wanted to fix it and learned some techniques, started with a couple and just went on from there. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's that saying that like all, all research is me search, right? I think that that's the thing that leads people to discover memory techniques is that they're sort of dissatisfied with their own memory. I can relate, definitely. <laughs> so how'd you get place for the, the TED Talks? I saw, I believe it was two different ones that I was watching earlier. How did that come about? Kind of by chance, the first one. I'm actually not entirely sure how I got the invitation to TEDx Canberra, which was the second 
TEDx talk that I gave, the second of the three. The first one I gave was actually TEDx Macquarie. That's the one that sort of everyone has seen. That's the one that went a little bit viral. And that one, I actually, I sort of won an invitation to, they had a kind of student speaker competition at Macquarie University, which is where I did my honours degree. The honours degree also for your listeners that aren't from Australia is like an extra year after an undergraduate degree where you do basically like a research project. It's kind of less intensive or less difficult than a, a master's thesis, but it can serve the same role. So if someone gets first class, they get a top score for their honours year, then they go straight into a PhD program. So yeah, so during my honours year, they were hosting the, the TEDx at Macquarie and they had a, a student speaker competition. And I sort of heard about it very last minute, the night before the competition closed from one of my fellow students. What I submitted actually was something that I had entered, a video I'd put together for a different competition, something that was related to my involvement in Mensa, which is actually still available on YouTube. If you look up, I think it's making communication memorable or something like that. This like short video presentation I put together. Anyway, it didn't work for the Mensa thing. I lost out that, but I won the student speaker competition and so kind of won the opportunity to speak at TEDx Macquarie. That's kind of cool. At least uh, you already had it ready and got on TEDx and I've kind of always wanted to be on that show. So a little envious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that talk changed my life, really. It, it sort of launched a, um, a kind of accidental career as, as a professional speaker. Uh, and I've since had the opportunity to speak all around the world in you know, the US, in London, in India. It's been a pretty wild ride. Nice. That sounds like an amazing opportunity. So when we're getting into some of the techniques that you use, are there any ones that you've found so far? I know coaching is part of what you do now. And do you find that there's different techniques that you recommend for like graduate students, medical students, somewhere at that level in their education versus maybe a younger student? I think that what we need to be sensitive to is often the, there are a whole lot of memory techniques and there are a whole lot of, they sort of exist at different degrees and levels of sophistication, right? So I think that even some sort of very simple, you know, what, what some people call like keyword mnemonics or sometimes called the substitute word method, you know, these kinds of things I think are useful at every stage of education. But of course, you know, where that stuff, the sort of basic techniques, the kind of thing that you might get in say a book on, if you pick up a book on memory techniques, you know, like one of Tony Bazan's books or something like that. Those techniques would help you just kind of destroy in high school. But of course, at a kind of graduate level or even at an undergraduate level, you know, a lot of the material we're learning is kind of a lot more sophisticated and a lot more abstract. And there you need to move beyond these sort of simple atomic techniques. You need to start building, really, if you want to be sort of competent at using memory techniques in these domains, you have to start building more sort of sophisticated systems that are often going to involve a whole lot of different memory techniques kind of stitched together to create a sort of Frankenstein's monster. What I try and do with my students is teach them not just the basic techniques, not just what they could get from books, but also to try and help them build mnemonic systems that they can then take into whatever domain they're trying to learn in or excel in, and they have that kind of ready-made thing, right? That seems to be a common issue I've heard from listeners of this podcast and others that I've talked to is they'll read a book or listen to a podcast or something along those lines and get the basics of something down. But it's really easy to plateau, especially if you don't have exact examples for, in this case, medicine to follow, which there's a lot of terminology, complex terms to remember, complex um, systems that you have to put together. And you might be taught them in a multitude of different ways, depending on your instructor as well. So it's really hard to like piece these together in a comprehensive, a strong, as you said, atomic technique. That's exactly right. And, and I think that it gives a lot of people the impression that memory techniques aren't useful in these kinds of sophisticated contexts. It's easy to understand as well why all the memory books are the same, because most of the memory books are written, or why most of them are like this, because most of them are written by memory athletes. 
And of course, memory athletes are just memorizing very, very simple things. They're memorizing a lot. The volume, the speed is incredible, but they're still just memorizing simple strings of numbers or simple lists of words. It's easy to see why people get the impression that they sometimes do, that these techniques aren't suitable for more complex material. But as I say, you'll be disabused of that notion very, very quickly if you just kind of cast your gaze back in time a little bit, because these techniques originated and the, the use of these techniques historically were in contexts where the stuff being learned was very, very abstract and very, very sophisticated. So the kind of real models, if we want to look for kind of models of memory techniques used in practical contexts, don't come so much from contemporary memory athletes as they do from like medieval memory masters who were using these techniques to memorize sort of complex texts, philosophy, theology, also science. So people like Gottfried Leibniz and Francis Bacon, you know, some of the kind of founding figures in science saw the value of these techniques, not just for learning and accumulating scientific knowledge, but also for the creation and development of new ideas. You have from history this really compelling evidence that these techniques can be used in more complicated contexts. The challenge for students, particularly those who have tried to teach themselves from books, as you say, is to move beyond those simple examples and learn how to apply their techniques to the kind of messiness and complexity of real-world learning. Yeah, I suppose uh, using a peg system or a major method, something like that's great for a string of numbers, but might not be the best system to implement if you're trying to memorize a complicated medical text or at least get the main key points from that. I know most of the interviews that we've done from other memory champions and memory instructors have really focused a lot of them on memory palaces. Is that one that you would recommend for this degree of education as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, you're never just using memory palaces. The memory palace is a way of storing or of organizing information, but you're still going to need other techniques, other methods for encoding that information, for like transforming it into a form that you can actually place in a memory palace. Let's take the numbers. The major system is not just for memorizing numbers sort of on the fly. You, you can still use the major system to encode numerical information that you then store in memory palaces for example. So the memory palace is certainly, it's one very powerful technique and very sort of easy to use technique, but you're still going to need to think about how you're organizing your memory palaces. Take, for example, there's a, a, a mnemonist from the 16th century, a guy named Peter of Ravenna. He wrote this text called The Phoenix, which was very popular at the time. He bragged of having memorized 20,000 legal points, a thousand texts by Ovid, 200 of Cicero's speeches and sayings, 300 sayings of philosophers, 7,000 texts from scriptures and a host of other classical works. I'm quoting now from a book I have in front of me. For leisure, he would reread books cached away in his many memory palaces. When I left my country to visit as a pilgrim the cities of Italy, I can truly say I carried everything I owned with me, he wrote. To store all those images, Peter started with 100,000 loci, but he was always picking up new memory palaces as he traveled across Europe. He constructed a mental library of sources and quotations on every important subject classified alphabetically. He boasts, for example, that filed away in his brain under the letter A with sources on the subjects, I'll skip the Latin, about provisions, about foreign property, about absence, about judges, about appeals, and about similar matters in our law which begin with the letter A. Each piece of knowledge was assigned a specific address, and then if he wanted to find any particular piece, he could just reach into the proper memory palace, the proper chamber of the proper memory palace, and pull out the appropriate source. And so, it's not just about having the memory palaces. When you have that degree of complexity of information, you then need additional systems to help you actually keep track of all your memory palaces. I'm a big fan of the method of loci or, or memory palace. It's a, an indispensable tool in a master's arsenal, but it's still, you know, we've got to start moving beyond more kind of simplistic conceptions of how these things are in terms of how these things are presented and also how they're used in, in memory competitions. 
So an example that I've heard used before as a potential way to set this up would be, let's say if you're a first year medical student, you have certain courses that you have to take certain disciplines, you know, microbiology, anatomy, physiology, all of these different courses that instead of setting up your memory palaces by alphabet, as is in that example and several others I've heard, to do it by discipline. But even then, unless you have a very large palace to to stick all of your visuals in, it could easily get overrun. Are there maybe some cautions towards that mentality or some other way that you could picture doing it for a large text like that that's very, very dense? One of the problems or challenges of using the memory palace is precisely this, that at least on the normal way of thinking about it, they have a certain kind of inflexibility. So if we plan out our memory palaces before we start memorizing, and let's say we, we sort of plan out, this memory palace has like 100 stages, and then we fill those 100 stages with information. Let's say we're memorizing historical dates, and we sort of lay down, let's say we memorize the 100 most important dates in history, and we build a memory palace with 100 stages, and we go through and put them down. One problem with this is, well, what happens if we want to we go back and learn more dates? It looks like our memory palace is full. There's nowhere for us to kind of like add additional information. So memory palaces suffer from this certain kind of inflexibility if we think about them in that way. But I think with, with a few sort of changes, with a sort of slight shift in thinking, we can solve these kinds of problems. Once you've sort of laid down all your images, let's say you know them fairly well, then the thing to do is to stop thinking of those as images in a memory palace, but think of them as features of the memory palace itself. Think of them, so in the same way, not, you, know, you might have like, let's say one part of your memory palace originally might've been a table, and then, you know, on the table, you place an image that represents something. Let's say that image is like a panda bear juggling pineapples or something. I don't know what this could encode, but let's just pretend. Okay. Well, after a while, after you know that stuff really well, then you can think, go back and you can actually think of the, of the panda bear juggling pineapples as a stage in your memory palace, as part of the landscape. And then it actually becomes a kind of location upon which you can add further images and further elaboration. And so you can think of these memory palaces as becoming sort of increasingly, you know, as they become sort of increasingly densely populated and, and more detailed, what you're actually doing is sort of increasing the, the level of resolution on the memory palace. And so you can sort of expand them like that. So that's one way of, of, of overcoming this challenge of the seeming inflexibility of memory palaces. For that, I was just thinking of one issue that I've had in the past trying to add to previous mnemonics. And that is, at least in my experience, they have to be related to what you're sticking it on. You can't necessarily mix and match different topics or it's going to easily get too confusing. That's a really good point. So in this case, you know, you can stick like later dates on other dates. Let's say we're memorizing a list, let's say of like the countries, top 10 most populated countries or something. Again, this is a simple example, but you'll see how we can start to elaborate on it. So we, we, we have one country, one image per country in each memory palace. Well, then we can go back and we can attach another image to that original one like we can sort of stick it on top, but yeah, it's got to be kind of related in the right way. So let's say we want to remember that, that Dhaka is the capital of, of Bangladesh. We might have, like, let's say, Bengal tiger is our image for Bangladesh. And then we might imagine a duck, because it sounds like Dhaka, just sort of sitting on top of the tiger. Or whatever. So this is kind of related, yeah. And I could do the same thing. I could associate other things, other things about Bangladesh, maybe some images encoded by the major system or whatever system, you know, that represents like the population or something like that. But as you say, you know, it's, it's kind of got to be related in that sense. And it seems like it would be difficult to do this in a medical course in the aspect that there is so much material and you don't know just the quantity of it. So you're not going to be able to plan it out properly. The best you could do is, let's say, take a pharmacology course for an example. 
I could try to pre-read all the different medications that we're going to need for the upcoming exam. And I can try to separate them in different rooms. Like maybe this is an antiarrhythmic room. This is a antibiotic room or something along those lines. And then later on, I could go add in side effects to the initial visual that I created. But even then, like it gives you some variability, but it's still going to be extremely difficult to properly plan for, it seems, especially if you're learning it bit by bit throughout the chapters, not skimming through the entire book ahead of time, which is probably not conducive. Then there just seems to be a lot of issues if you don't have enough knowledge going in. That's absolutely right. And it's why the memory palace should be one tool among many. There are workarounds. And I'm sure if you talk to other memory athletes, they'll give you possible solutions. But history of memory techniques is much richer. In fact, it's much richer even than the kind of Western tradition of the art of memory. So there's been a lot of of interest recently, indigenous memory techniques from around the world. So in kind of non-literate societies, we're discovering that a lot of these indigenous communities have encyclopedic knowledge, flora and fauna, you know, their own histories and so on and so forth. It's worth looking for inspiration at these other kind of indigenous cultures in there, which, of course, kind of converge on the same principles and are animated by the same principles and concepts of the techniques in the art of memory. This Western tradition goes back to ancient Greece, but have their own kind of profile of strengths and weaknesses. So to take one simple example, there's this thing called a Lukasa board, a memory board of the Luba people. It's basically a kind of like piece of wood. It's got sort of attached to it in various configurations, beads and shells and other bits and pieces. And then it it becomes a kind of landscape in miniature. They sort of become so familiar with the the particular grain of the directions and, and swirls of grains of wood and the contours and beads that every part of this board is effectively like a kind of memory palace to which you can sort of attach things. But of course, one of the advantages of the Lucasa board over architectural memory palaces is that this can be modified in various ways. It's fairly easy to kind of add things on. You could potentially, you know, move things around and so on. There are a whole range of additional memory techniques that can be employed effectively in educational contexts that have their own strengths and weaknesses, you know. I'll plug another Australian mnemonist, a woman named Lynn Kelly. She has written a couple of books, recent books, actually, on Indigenous cultures and memory techniques. One is called The Memory Code. The other is called The Memory Craft. In fact, she'd be a great guest for this podcast. She knows far, far more about Indigenous memory techniques than I do. And she's done some some pretty interesting experiments as well, where she's kind of replicated and and built some of these systems and then applied them in interesting ways. She's memorized all of human history and memorized the birds of Australia. And she's a serious academic as well. She did this as, as part of her own academic research. I'm wondering if I might be mixing this up completely, but I was listening to uh, either a TED Talk or a podcast, and it was related to Indigenous people not using maps. They had completely different mnemonic techniques to perfectly describe to each other within the tribe for like dozens of miles away. And this is all by foot, obviously. So there's Mm -hmm. some interesting techniques there. I'm not sure if that's related to her work or not. So there's a lot of research going on in anthropology and cognitive anthropology about this stuff at the moment. It's pretty kind of hot topic right now. I think that like the Navajo elders can like distinguish thousands of insects by sight. And uh, certainly that's not something any entomologist alive uh, in any university in the world could do. Uh, And of course, this is just one, this is just insects. So, you know, not only that, but they can presumably do the same thing with plants and and other animals and so on. So we really do find in these non-literate cultures, these incredibly sophisticated mnemonic education systems. Those could probably really come in handy for some medical students with the massive amount of terminology and and concepts that you have to remember. Are there any particular 
mistakes or pitfalls that you notice a lot from some of your students that the listeners can try to avoid or bad habits to avoid, anything like that? There are a lot of them. (laughs) This is why I think that the right model for thinking about these things, and the way I describe what I do is is as a form of coaching, because it's not just a matter of teaching the techniques. Let's say you have someone describe to you how to dribble a basketball in a book, or they just describe to you even verbally. You're not going to be very good at it. What you need is someone who can critique your technique and adjust it and give you drills and exercises and highlights certain things to work on. Most of what I do really is kind of point out pitfalls to give a kind of couple of very simple examples. This is actually probably the biggest one. One is that they tend to make stories that are in some real sense stories. If you give someone a list who's just starting out with memory techniques, often what they'll do is they'll try and create a a kind of fairly rich narrative where like they'll latch onto the first item on the list and that becomes like the main character of the story. And then sort of everything, the story they'll tell is of this character going on interacting with these other items in the list. Now, the, the problem with this is that, well, there are lots of problems. One is that stories have a whole lot of features that a good mnemonic shouldn't have or doesn't need at the very least. They have internal consistency. They have plot arcs. They have recurring characters, recurring elements. Now, if you're trying to keep track of all of these things, then that's going to be additional load on your cognitive resources. And at a certain point, if you're trying to keep track of all of these things all at once, it's going to basically mean that you're going to hit a hard limit. Well, you're going to hit a limit of kind of how much you can, how long your sort of or sophisticated or complex your networks or chains of associations can be. Because while you're trying to come up with this stuff, you're trying to keep track of everything that's gone on all at once. Good mnemonic networks or good mnemonic chains or whatever you know, whatever the sort of structure is, they don't have to be like that. They can be very, very simple. And so you don't have to worry about things like what was this character, what was the last thing this character did? What have they picked up along the way or whatever? Just link from one item to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, and so on. This I think is in part because some mnemonists and, and memory athletes in books will describe this as the story method, but it's not, it's not a story at all. It doesn't have any of the features that a good story should have. A good mnemonic story is a really bad story story often. So an English teacher would have a fit if you submitted that for your uh, your story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I had never thought about it that way by simplifying the story and cutting out all of the aspects that you need for a proper story it actually makes it easier to remember as well. I mean, it, obviously it has to pop, it has to be creative, but like you said, the cognitive load aspect, that makes a lot of sense too. It's not just that. So that does place a kind of like upper limit to the complexity of your mnemonics of the sort of, you know, of the volume and the speed at which you're memorizing. But in addition, you know, it increases the likelihood of making mistakes. Something which is like part of the story, but not part of the data set you're memorizing, you might incorrectly or inappropriately recall as part of the, the data set. This can be really problematic. So if you're memorizing somebody's name and you add on extra syllables because of some image you have in your, in one of your stories, then you don't have that person's name anymore. If you, let's say you've got a bunch of images and you know that most of them are numbers that are supposed to represent something, but one of those images you think maybe you just incorporated because it helped make the story good, made it improve the story as a story, but it's not actually part of the original data set. You don't know which of those images you're supposed to translate back into numbers. You're at the risk of, you know, let's say you're memorizing someone's phone number, you know, you're out, you're at a party, you know, you meet somebody cute and you want to get their digits, they give you their phone number. If you have an extra digit or something or an extra image that you're not sure which of those images is the number and which of them aren't, you don't have a phone number anymore. This kind of thinking of these things like a story not just makes it harder to memorize, not just sets a limit to how fast and how much you can remember, but also increases significantly the risk of making an error in recall. 
That makes sense. A lot of distracting material, which medical students should be somewhat used to because they purposely make board exam questions like that now with a bunch of distractions and the answer choices have to be very close to the right answer. So being aware of distractors is a a good habit for all aspects, including your memory training. Yeah. Okay. Are there any other pitfalls that are very common that we might be able to cover pretty succinctly here? As I say, I think that, again, this is not the fault, I think, of memory students. This is a fault of memory athletes in the way that we often communicate. If the only impression that a person has of the world of mnemonics is of memory sports, you know, it's a little bit, you can hardly blame them for coming away with the impression that this is like very, very impressive, but pretty useless, right? It's a little bit like if your only exposure to cars is Formula One races, you know, where you see these cars driving really, really fast, but only around in circles. You're going to think this is really impressive, but also useless. And you're going to miss the potential usefulness of of cars in the real world. Even though, you know, what we do when we drive around, the cars look very different. The the way in which we drive looks very different. And the same thing, I think that a lot of the, the times a mistake that students make is just to underestimate the ways in which memory techniques can meet the demands of what they're doing. And so they too likely or too easily settle for these kind of very simple implementations or or expressions of the techniques, you know, in terms of just like memorizing terminology or something like that. I think maybe this will relate to that a little bit. When uh, I first started, I was practicing the very, very basics. And that would be like the peg system for basic number associations. And I'm like, I'm never going to need this for any of my medical studies. Very rarely do you need to remember net numbers in medicine, besides a few chromosomes here and there. But I found it was actually useful for sort of enticing creativity and just getting some practice using the same images in new and different ways that can be elaborated on more as you get to more advanced techniques. Yeah, absolutely. And everything you learn at the early stages remains potentially useful. You know, one of the first memory techniques that I learned, you know, was the, the, the numbers. Yeah, it's like peg words, the number shapes or number rhyme. Now, obviously, I don't use those for encoding numbers because I have the major system, but I still use the, my number shapes. I just kind of converted them into a person action object system. Now I can generate a thousand distinct images from this simple system, from this originally just sort of 10 image system. And I use that as a tool basically for organizing other memory systems so that now each memory palace I have can be assigned a distinct uh, numerical address and I can kind of cycle through all of them. The way I think about it is like, have you ever seen the the science fiction show from the 90s, Stargate? Hold on. (laughs) Oh, awesome. Okay, great. Yeah. For for the audience, I just showed my um, tattoo that is a TARDIS going through a Stargate. So that's kind of how I think about this system, right? Because what I have are these sort of, one way of thinking about the, the combinatorial systems, the person action object systems, which originated actually in the, was, they were sort of brought to their fullest expression in the Renaissance by this mnemonist named Giordano Bruno, is you can think of them like interlocking, interconnected rings. And each, as the rings sort of turn, they line up to different combinations of letters, or in my case, numbers. And each of those will generate a distinctive image. And so in the same way, I kind of think about these rings like the Stargate, the coordinates that, you know, the Stargate. The chevrons. Yeah, (laughs) sort of spinning and then kind of matching up. And then that sort of, I walk through and it leads me to a certain memory palace. That's Um, awesome. I've had so many people talk about Star Trek and Star Wars. No one has brought up Stargate. So thank you for that. Now I have all of the nerdiness on my show. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) It seems like there are just infinite combinations. It's really about practice and creativity. And for students that are very busy uh, with their academic careers, then they might not have the time for this. And obviously developing a community is great. We have the Medical Anemonist Mastermind on Facebook, but it's very hard to get people to interact with those types of things. So maybe if someone is looking more for personal coaching, then that would be something that they could contact you for as well. 
before we get to all of the parting words here, I do have a way I generally end this, and uh, that is with just three wishes. So you ready to make some wishes? Uh, yeah, yeah, let's do it. All right. So is there anything that you wish you could remember better? Oh, I mean, everything, right? Like there's, there's a certain sense in which our kind of the richness of our experience of the world is predicated by sort of how much we know about it. I live near the Botanical Gardens and I love walking through the Botanical Gardens here in Canberra. They're beautiful, but I don't really know much about plants. They're just very pretty to me. But if I were, like a botanist walks through the Botanical Gardens, they have a kind of far, far richer experience of the gardens in virtue of how much they know about them, right? So they can see that like a certain plant is like blooming early, which means there's been some kind of like shift in the ambient temperature, or they might see the behavior or, or a blooming of a certain kind of population of insect, which indicates some other, reveals some other mystery to them. Richness of our experience of the world, and this really is our, our kind of one chance to walk through it, depends on, on how much we, we kind of know about that. And, and that's, of course, is determined by how much we remember about it. I really see the the memory techniques as not just kind of useful, but as a way of kind of engaging wholeheartedly with the world, a way of kind of enriching moment by moment my experience of life. I can't give a good answer to that. I wish I, I could remember everything better. Yeah. Great answer. I totally agree. That's why I try to learn about everything. The more you know about something, the more you appreciate it. It's not as much fun to, like you said, go through on a nature walk or go to an art exhibit or even a brewery. But if you have someone doing a guided tour and telling you about everything, then it's a much better experience. Yeah, absolutely. If there is one thing that you could change in education, what would it be? Well, <laughs> so it would be the incorporation of mnemonic techniques in kind of two ways. So the first is, you know, they would be kind of like deeply integrated into, you know, into our educational practices right from the start. So there's a, a, a kind of early Renaissance work called this, The City of the Sun. It's an early work of utopian fiction. I encourage people to kind of look it up on Wikipedia. I don't know if the Unfortunately, I don't have all the details remembered, but it's by this guy, Campanella. And the kind of most interesting part of this, it's a fictional utopian city that he imagines in this work. And the most interesting part of it is that it, there are these like seven walls that, that protect the titular city. Each of these walls acts as a kind of enormous visual mnemonic encyclopedia. And the way that the education system works is that the children walk around these walls. They sort of circumnavigate the walls guided by a teacher who interprets the mnemonic images to them. And it's just like being told stories. It's like a game to these kids. Each ring represents a kind of different subject, I guess. And then each year they graduate to the next ring, the next wall inside. Campanella imagines that, that in this society, students learn five times or seven times or whatever it is he imagines faster than conventional methods. And it's easy to imagine, you know, why that would, how something like this would work. Indeed, if you think about sort of Indigenous Australians and the song lines, for example, that's how much of this kind of, their, their sort of education system works. So memory techniques should be incorporated, not just in terms of teaching students how to create their own memory techniques and how to create their own mnemonic systems, but deeply integrated in the sense that they should be the kind of vehicle by which much of the, the material we want students to learn is delivered to them. We have so many discussions on this show about if we would have learned these as children, <laughs> how much stronger they'd be now, how much better we'd be out for it. All right. And the last one is if there's one thing you could change in medicine, what would it be? Can I give two answers to this question? Yeah, go for it. The justification I'm offering for cheating on this question is that 
One is on the kind of clinical side, the other is on the research side. Because I guess medicine has this sort of like split personality in this sense, right? That you have the clinical practice, which informs the research and the research, which informs the clinical practice as well. You know, this is unlike a lot of other disciplines. You know, engineering doesn't really have anything like this. I suppose maybe it has a sort of similar relationship with physics, but even still, you know, it's not quite quite the same. So on the, the kind of research side, I'd want to fix the, the things that led to the replication crisis. The replication crisis was like most dramatic and most heavily covered by the media and so on in, in psychology and, and sociology, where it turned out that like, you know, less than 50% of the most cited, 100 most cited papers in the discipline failed to replicate. But there have since been lots and lots of replication crises in almost every other field, but quite bad in medicine. Um, and for many of the same reasons, you know, sort of poor uh, research practices, p-hacking, publication biases and so on. This is something which I think the, is, is particularly important in medicine where the stakes are so high. And then on the clinical side, we need changes to how we educate or continue to educate doctors once they finish school. So there was a, a, a systematic review, a meta-analysis that came out of Harvard Medical School in 2005, basically of, of 63 studies looking at the relationship between clinical experience and patient outcomes. This is where my PhD research on expertise comes in. And basically in all but two of the studies, they found a negative relationship, an inverse relationship between clinical experience and patient outcomes. So doctors, for the most part, this is not universally true, so surgeons get progressively better as time goes on, but for the most part, doctors in a whole range of areas get progressively worse from the day they leave medical school. That's a terrifying kind of thing, particularly when you think that you know, most people, when they're looking for a doctor, will go for the one that looks the most experienced. But the reality is, is that can actually be disastrous. I've been hearing about that a lot lately, and no one seems to know exactly where the fault lies. And part of it is probably uh, continuing medical education credits are kind of not really uh, all created equal. And I'm sure many other factors that play a part there. But all right, good points. Uh, definitely something to think about. And uh, if you can send a link for that article, I'm kind of curious to see what they found too. Sure. Are there any other recommendations or tips for students? Yeah. This recommendation, I think, is going to be a little bit in vain in the sense that, you know, I recognise students are under enormous pressure. The volume of information they have to learn is, medical students in particular, is extraordinary. And many are unwilling to part with their sort of tried and true methods of learning. What I would encourage them to do is to, of anyone who's interested in mnemonics and who thinks that mnemonics might be a valuable tool in their education, should do research into, into mnemonic systems of the Renaissance and the Middle Ages, because that's a time when, when these techniques were being used not for trivial examples, but for really, really complex material. And the same thing goes, as I say, for looking at, at mnemonic systems from Indigenous cultures, because you've got this very, very rich well to draw from of techniques designed specifically for handling the messiness of the real world, as opposed to the impressive but comparatively sterile and controlled environment of, of memory competitions. That's a good point. I'm still only really been studying this stuff for about a year, maybe a little less. And I feel like a lot of the techniques I read were sort of basic to start with and trying to find out how to associate them, especially with material I've already sort of passed the courses and everything. It's, it's hard to go back and find the best way to relate them to. So uh, I think that's some very unique advice. I don't believe that's been said before to really focus on Renaissance mnemonics. So very useful. Great. And then where can the students find you to get a hold of you? Uh, questions about coaching, anything like that? If they just Google my name, <laughs> sort of the same place, I suppose you've got to find anything else. Basically my website, which is just my name, danielkilov.com. Also, you can search for stuff on YouTube and of course, a contact form actually through my website if anyone wants to get in touch. Perfect. And we'll definitely add those into the show notes as well. Your website, danielkilov.com. And uh, probably find the 
TED Talks too, if you can find the links for those. I know they're on your website too. So actually everything can be found on the website. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. I really make an effort that anytime I do kind of like a public talk or write something for a publication, you know, if, if I can, I, I try and share it on my website for free because these techniques transformed my life in so many ways. And um, they're part of a kind of cultural inheritance that I think belongs to all of us you know, equally. Well, Daniel Kilov, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you very much.